We understand that you brought Black Russian to this year's AFM. Is that correct? Correct. Um, what was your strategy going there? Going there? Mm -hmm. Well, the strategy was to um, pitch a film that um, had a relevant uh, construct or concept, that being um, uh, narco-terrorism. And, you know, it, the, the movie itself takes place in perhaps arguably the, one of the most uh, dangerous parts of the world currently, which is the Pakistan-India border region and around Afghanistan. And the, 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 the pitch was that, you know, we have a very interesting um, screenplay that takes place in this backdrop. And the story itself is a, it's fundamentally a, a kidnapping story. It's a story of a Los Angeles-based lawyer who goes in search of his um, uh, fiance. But the backdrop is is you know very compelling. So it's a it's a story that we've heard before. Like you know, obviously you've seen films like Taken, Man on Fire, and so forth. But we decided to shoot it um, in this um, uh, environment to make it more 21st century, or uh, as we say, 2013. Um, uh, what's current here in the U.S. I mean, I, I guess. While we were doing the screenplay, it was interesting um, that, you, you know, the SEAL team had captured and killed Osama bin Laden at that point, and this was going on while we were in pre-production. So um, it gave us a little bit more, um, I suppose, um, motivation to really get, get our story out there because it became a relevant issue. We, we see that part of the world from a certain lens and what I wanted to do was show that part of the world from sort of the um, the community's point of view and at the same time tell a story that hopefully people will find uh, very interesting. So in synopsis, the, the strategy of the AFM was to go there and say, look, you know, I know that, you know, you don't know me. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not your um, mainstream filmmaker. I'm not, you know, anyone who's uh, connected to a big studio. But I have a compelling story, and I have um, something I think audiences um, across the board here, with, whether here in the U.S. or abroad, be interested in. What type of prep work did you do beforehand to get yourself ready to go, whether it was just administrative, getting flyers ready or whatever? Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, the main thing about um, a lot of what happened at the uh, AFM this year was also a learning experience for me. But before going into any type of festival or um, or gathering, it's really good to know all the players. So you really have to do a lot of research. And the first thing to do is to find out who's going to be at the AFM. So that's a critical component. So you actually contact the AFM and find out which vendors are going to be there, which production houses are going to be there, which distributors are going to be there. And then you painstakingly slowly start the process one by one contacting everybody. Because when you're in independent production and you don't know anybody, then you want to reach out to everyone. And sure, people are going to slam the door in your face and or put the phone down on you rather. But you want to contact as many people as possible and set up as many appointments as possible to pitch your story and your concept. Before, um, you know, before, before going into the AFM, um, some filmmakers will have a completed film. Some will have uh, a film that needs financing. Others will have one that's actually being shot. In our situation, we were in post-production. So since our film was already fully financed, that gave us a little bit of an edge, I think. 
Um, the other thing that I was pushing for um, in post-production was to finish our trailer and a couple of reels before we went to the AFN, which we were able to accomplish. And I think that really, really helped a lot in regards to securing appointments because when you're talking to the other person on their side, they're like, well, what do you, what do you have to show us? And we're like, okay, well, let's, you know, here's the trailer, go online and look at it. And then as soon as we got the production houses to look at the trailer or the distributors, they were interested. They're like, oh, this is a pretty cool trailer. You know, can we see the film? And we're like, well, not yet. <laughs> so, because, you know, even though I could have showed them a rough cut, I, I didn't want to because I'm very protective with the film. I, I want to show the film when people are capable of getting the full experience, meaning with the color corrected, the sound designed, um, in an environment where they're actually going to give it um, some credibility. The last thing I want is to hand a DVD to somebody and have them slap it into a laptop and while they're on the you know subway in the morning you know watching the film and talking to somebody while they're having coffee so you know as a filmmaker you put your heart and your soul into a project for you know a couple years and in in the end you know you you want someone just to give the the project a little bit of uh, you know respect so so i have a, kind of a different philosophy about just handing out copies of the film so you would recommend to other filmmakers before going to AFM, first off, do your research, find out who's going to be there, yeah, and maybe research what other types of films they've taken in and then target the ones, and also have something to show people. Yeah, exactly. The, the, key, is, the key is research and communicating. You, you really want to just get in touch with as many people as possible. And the great thing about the AFM is, you know, people may not, be interested in your film or they may not want to actually actually um, um, well I guess they may not want to be interested in your film but they may just want to meet you and it's a great opportunity because you have a lot of veterans there and and I you can get a lot of advice for your for a future project or even even the project you're on and sometimes you know it's it's just like you know everyone knows everyone so it's just it's it's great for networking I suppose what lessons did you take away from going to AFM and were there any things in hindsight that you wish you'd known? Well, one of, one of the, the lessons I learned in the AFM and, you know, it, it's not, I don't particularly agree with this philosophy, but it's something I did learn. But I don't, but, what, but I'm going to, uh, the caveat here is that I don't necessarily agree with this. Every distribution company out there always asked, well, who's the talent in the film so and it didn't really matter if it was um uh you know an, uh, a b-list actor or a c-list actor or an a-list actor even if they were in there for like you know 30 seconds they just wanted somebody attached to the film so when you're out there doing a project and if you can grab on to like uh, an a-lister or a b-lister who will come into your project for just like you know even like a few minutes to the distributors that makes a big difference or if you're dealing with a finite budget and you can allocate some funds to hire talent that um, can bring attention to your project then the distributors do do take notice um, my personal philosophy on filmmaking is if you if you as an independent filmmaker, you, you have a very limited budget. And I like to put all of my funding into the, the story and hiring like excellent actors and talent, but it doesn't, they don't have to 
have been on you know NBC for five years or had like you know a couple of big movies or something because what I'm trying to do is tell a story uh, a compelling story and I guess I I go into the project my philosophy is going into the project in completing a film and hopefully people will find it entertaining but the thing I learned from the AFM is that you should go into a film thinking well how am I going to sell it in the end so that's the big take-home message like if you want to continue in this business um, unless you've hit a home run on your first film and you've got extra funds to to knock out a couple more films you got to go into it thinking what's your end game what's your exit strategy and sometimes as a creative person you you sort of have to take a back seat and be um, business-minded and say to yourself okay well maybe I can do this excellent uh, action sequence for 30 grand over three days but I'd give this 30 grand to this great actor to come in for two days so I can put him on the face of my DVD cover <laughs> so so th those are the kind of you know things you 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 learn at the AFM the business of it that's uh, and you, and you learn it well when you're over there because everyone asks well who's in the film who's attached so so in knowing that you think of the end result in the story um, what prompted you to want to do this story versus like a teen vampire thriller okay well here's the deal uh, as a producer and actor um, as a producer I'm looking to make a film that audiences are going to enjoy as an actor I need to make a film that I believe in so I don't believe in vampire films or, or uh, you know teenagers running around killing each other I don't buy it so as an actor I'm not going to be able to express it so I need I need to find something as a producer I need to put forth the mainstream uh, film that audiences are going to like but as an actor um, I'm going to have to pick a subject matter which I believe in which is uh, action drama I believe in action and I believe in drama so those are the films I, I choose to do and those are the, ch the films I choose to produce and, and make so in knowing that, would you say that filmmaking is 75% business and 25% creativity? Or I'm putting words in your mouth. Yeah, so forgive me. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I think I I think you got the I think you got the statistics right, but I I'd, I'd I'd go ahead and flip them. I'd say it's 75% creativity and 25% business because if you're just in the business of making films then you enter the world of like well let's just crank out a really low budget film that we know is going to make money like a horror film and then you're you're completely in the business of it because your whole strategy is all about how much money am I going to make off this film and then I can make my next one then I can make my next one so then it becomes 75 percent business and that's one way to go I don't agree with that because like I said being the actor as well as the producer it has to be 75% creativity because it's got to be a story that that I feel I can walk away from and, and be like yeah you know I, I like that performance it's something compelling it's a hell of a lot more riskier than doing just a film based on on numbers and figuring out a specific demographic and knowing you can make a profit off of it but but for me it's a, it's, it's a lot more rewarding so when I go into a film, it, it, it is solidly about 75% creativity because the script has to be exciting, the characters have to be exciting, the where we're shooting has to be exciting. Everything has to be compelling because if you're going to be the driving force behind a film, you have to believe in it 
and you have to engross yourself in it, enthrall yourself with it. And so it's, it's highly creative. At the same time, um, there's the part of you that has to be um, uh, uh, very pragmatic and realistic on expectations. So when, when I go into um, shooting a film as a producer, um, I, I'm very realistic about the outcome. I'm not, I'm not going into the film thinking, man, this is it. I'm, I'm hitting a home run, baby. You know, I'm the next Vince Vaughn. You know, this is my swingers. No, I'm not thinking that at all. I'm just thinking I got to do a good job. Um, if somehow people see it, I, I feel grateful. Um, if I actually make money off of it, it's, it's a plus, you know, it's definitely a plus, but I go in there with very realistic expectations. Like, okay, you know, you're you're going against a lot of great people, and the probability of you succeeding is pretty close to to zero. So you you got to go in there with that sort of solemn attitude. Um, and and for me, um, for me, I, I, I it's got to be very creative. <laughs> but um, yeah, it'd be cool to be more business minded. But but if I was just a producer, I probably could do that. But since I'm acting in the films, it just can't do it. <laughs> Were there certain filmmakers that you try to emulate your style, like a Roger Corman, who's known for Roger and Julie Corman, I should say. They're known for just doing things, you know, very very quickly and, and being very cost efficient. Um, you know, I I don't I don't have the the background to to know how filmmakers actually have have done their films and how efficiently they've done them. I've I've basically had to reinvent the wheel for myself so i didn't really have any examples of the the logistics of filmmaking like how do we shoot a film quickly how do we make a film in 21 days versus 45 days so these are experiences that um i had to sort of develop on my own you know the only people that that you know once again that um that i emulated were just um sort of um uh, i guess you would call them uh, dreams or, or fantasies, but you, you, like you think of Sylvester Stallone, for instance, you got a guy who comes in with a screenplay and says like, look, I'm gonna play this guy and you guys gotta produce it. So those are the type of guys I think of, or like, you know, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, they come up with a beautiful screenplay and, you know, they get, at that time, um, just uh, Robin Williams, who was like super hot to do it and and it gets sold and it, and, it, and it moves forward or like Vince Vaughn like I mentioned you know they do a very relevant LA centric film so th you know these guys are you know in a, in a whole whole different league but you know that's who I, I kind of look up to in regards to um, hoping to do a film that you know will click you know at some point um, but the logistics of filmmaking that's that's just been a painful uh, a learning process for me so I, I, I kind of learn I, I figure out like what's the most efficient way to do this like the first film I did what I shot it on 35 millimeter so I did 35 millimeter I looked at all the logistics of it like the the telecine the transfer how do we get the film to the lab and then the second film I was like wait a minute you know we got to go digital here because we're gonna be able to you know really do a much better job so we shot it on the red so you know it's an evolution and you become way more efficient as you start doing more and more films and the current film we're working on which is winter's dream it's going to be shot on a, on two reds it's going to be shot on a red mx and an epic and so we're going to be able to move a lot more efficiently through scenes so as a filmmaker you you it's like anything in life the more you do it 
the more efficient you get and the more better. It's just like practicing anything. I, I think you, you slowly get a little bit better at it as time goes on. We understand that you just wrote an article for Filmmaker Magazine, like a four-page spread. Can you tell us how that came about and uh, what you felt you needed to tell the audience? Okay. Well, the the way the Filmmaker article came about was um, I'm working with um, a really good uh, PR team. So that's that's... I think that's another advice that I'd like to give to people out there who are not that I'm in any position to give advice. Let me just let me just say that first. But if if I if I could give advice, what I would say is that um when you're doing a film and you're financing a film, make sure on the tail end you have people who will work with you in public relations because you know a f you can make a film but it's useless unless people know about it, unless people actually see it. So, um, so I'm, I'm working with a really great team, and, and one of the guys, Christopher Kaplan, on the team, you know, orchestrated that event, and uh, and he he pitched the film, which the magazine the magazine found the film interesting, and they found I guess I guess they found my story interesting, so therefore they uh, contacted us to write an article about um, how we how we uh, produce two films. Um, so the guidance I got from the editor of the magazine was basically they wanted to know really the nuts and bolts of it, not so much the creative process, but how did you get to the Black Russian? How did you get the funding for it? And basically we got the funding from the Black Russian was from the profits we made from Mockery Decision, which was the first film. So in that four-page article, we describe how the impetus for Mockery Decision came about, how we got... Um, financers for that movie and how we made a profit from the first movie paid back the um, financers in kind who were very thrilled with us and we had enough funds left to shoot the black russian have money left over for pr and start pre-production for winter's dream which is what we're working on right now so so oh, i mean all i all i can really say is you know fundamentally the article if i could you know sum it up in a nutshell is we got lucky with the first film we just did you know there, there's no way around it and that's the way I view it people may view it differently but I view it I got very lucky I found a niche audience that seemed to like the film we we did very well in our foreign sales and um, we got the funds and we, we moved forward can you break down, can you give us like a Reader's Digest version of all, how all that happened? Okay, yeah, break down. So, okay, uh, 2008, um, you know, we start uh, writing the, the screenplay for Awkward Decision. Um, you know, at that point, I invested my own money. I hired a screenwriter uh, and gave him the parameters. I said, this is the story I want to tell. And, you know, as an independent filmmaker, it's really important that when you're working with a, with a screenwriter, you, you let them know the parameters. Because if the screenwriter comes back and says, okay, opening scene, you know, spaceship lands, and, you know, uh, alien comes out and blasts somebody with a, with a laser rifle, you're like, okay, well, there's your whole budget of the film and the opening scene, so you're done. So, so I just told the screenwriter the parameters. I said, look, pal, this is, this is, this is the reality of it. We're going to shoot here, we're going to shoot here, we're going to shoot there. This is the story I kind of, I, I kind of want to tell. Give me a screenplay that that's going to work for that. So once the screenplay was done, and that was my own personal investment, so I had skin in the game. 
So that was key. That was that's point number one. If you want to make a film, you got to put something into it. You got to put some personal sacrifice has to go into it because if you go to a financer without personal sacrifice and without being professional, um, you, no one's going to really think you're legitimate, especially if you don't have any connections. So you know, point number one is be professional, and and you you need to take risk on your own project. That's critical. Uh, it's easy to play around with somebody else's money. Very easy, and a lot of people in this industry do, and uh, and they're not professional, in my opinion. So be professional, um, put some skin in the game, um, and then then see if you can get the financing. We happen to be able to um, get 80% of the financing from non-traditional investors, and once we had that financing, we shot the film. We were very realistic on our tar our target audience at that point, which was going to be uh, a foreign uh, category. I didn't feel like as a first-time filmmaker I would have a chance of competing here in Hollywood. Um, I figured I needed to find a way that I could make a film that would be appreciated abroad. And my strategy was a little different in retrospect. Maybe I would have just done more of a Hollywood-centric film, but I, I, I chose to do a film that would be more uh, world-friendly, not, you know, not heavy on the sex, you know, not heavy on the the, the violence and the swearing, but still compelling still an action action drama film um and uh you, you know once we we accomplished that film the, the i guess the the readers <laughs> digest point two would be when you're when you're distributing your film you got to be involved in every step otherwise you're going to get uh what's the word uh ripped off so yeah there your money's going to go into somebody else's pocket so with, especially with foreign distribution, you have to be involved with everything. You have to know what theaters the film is, the film is being played in. You have to um, know how much money that theater is making. So it's it's once again a logistical nightmare because for you to keep track of the funds of a film so you can actually make a profit off of it is is crazy. A lot of times I hear, you know, filmmakers say, "Oh well, we have a distributor and they distribute the film for us, but it didn't make any money." And my question is, well, how come it didn't make any money? How do you know? Oh, well, they told us it, it didn't. So there, you have to have full transparency with your distributors. And if you don't, um, you're going to get taken for a ride. So these guys who, who say like, hey, you know, we have this strategy. We're going to give you a report every quarter. Unless they're fully transparent, um, either sell it outright, but don't go for a percentage. So that's the big, big point for filmmakers out there. Don't do it. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Don't do it because it's it's you're 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 gonna end up with the short end of the stick stick. Um, so, you know, we got the funding and we um, made made a profit by choosing to focus on foreign foreign sales at that point. Um, and then we, uh, you know, moved on to the Black Russian. The Black Russian came about because there was actually a couple theaters in the north of India that were playing the film uh, for over a year. So I was really interested in trying to figure out, like, well, why would anybody want to want to play my film for over a year? Because I was, you know, I'm 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 pragmatic. I'm a realist. I'm like, well, you know, that that's weird. I, I found that very strange. So I took a trip to go up into this part of India to find this theater, which the the film was still playing. Like it's like a cult favorite. And I was like, well, why is it a cult favorite here? What is it about the people here that appreciate the film? And I thought I could learn something. Like maybe I could learn something, you know, by watching these people that, so that way I could emulate that in the next film, but extrapolate that to a larger audience. 
on my journey there is when I encountered a lot of, uh, you know, problems which I saw with um, with drug trafficking in India, and that's where the concept of the Black Russian came about, the current film. So I was investigating Akri decision when the the whole impetus and idea of the Black Russian occurred. And then when I got back to the United States, I, we started the screenplay for that, and I knew where to put the money now, um, as opposed to just sitting on it. You talk about wanting to get full transparency from a distributor, but how does someone do that due diligence if a lot of people are really good at you know hiding numbers and, and being evasive? How do you how do you take ownership of that if if you're getting someone that's giving you the runaround? Because we've heard that from other filmmakers where yeah. they've tried to contact them, and people can keep very creative books. They can. So th the way you do that is you do it before you sign the paperwork. So that's the key. So it's not after you sign the paperwork. Once you sign the paperwork and you give them the rights to your film, or let me put you, let me put it to you this way: once you give them a digibeta with a film on it, and you don't have anything in writing that allows you to visit their office, look at their numbers, and do all these things, then it's it's out of your hands basically. So when you're dealing with a distribution company, it, when I mean fully transparent, I, I think they should have a physical office that's accessible to you, not some, you know somebody based in, in Texas or Kentucky and who has like a branch office in Los Angeles that's only open during the AFM. That, that might be a warning to you. So just you know, <laughs> just uh, to, for you know filmmakers to know. So you want to have a concrete office that, that has an open door policy that you can visit. Um, you want to know where your film is going. And one of the ways to ensure that is don't give them the film. Don't give them the film, period. You hang on to it. And, and you say, okay, you guys are going to get whatever, 30%, 40%, or 60% of the profit, whatever. But I, han I hang on to the media. So when you get an order, you tell me about the order, and I'll supply it. And that supposed like ninety-nine cents per CD charge that you want to charge me, I'll eat that. I'll, I'll make the CD for you. I'll do the DVD for you. No, no problems. Keep your film with you. And 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 I, and I stress that too with like screeners. A lot of people are very flippant or ambivalent about screeners. Yeah, send me a screener. Send me a screener. Don't send people screeners unless it's. You know, you're, you you feel they're legit, and you feel that they're there's somebody that you're actually going to work with. Because even at the AFM, a lot of people are like, you didn't bring a screener? It's like, no, I didn't bring a screener. Are you going to buy the film? No, no, I just want to look at it. Well, when you want to buy it, or if you really think about, you know, if you really want to, you know, distribute it, because you're already asking me, like, what's who's the talent and who shot the film, who's the director? I don't know this person. I don't know X, Y, Z. So once that film goes out of your hand, then, you know, it's it's pretty much over. They can do pretty much whatever they want, unless you are fortunate enough to have Lionsgate buy your film, which, you know, it, which is wonderful if that ever happens. But um, so keep the technology with you. Keep your keep your media with you. That's key. And if somebody wants to distribute for you, let them distribute for you. But you keep the goods and, and it really shouldn't make a difference because like if I'm a distribution company and I say to uh, Redbox that, okay, Redbox, um, I'm going to give you 1,000 units and you're going to give me uh, $4,000 for it. And then you can tell your, your film guy like, hey, guys, we're getting a $4,000 check from Redbox. Here's your 2,000. Here's our 2,000. 
Um, can you get them 4,000 units of the film by the 31st of January? No problems. We'll, we'll send a red box right now. So I think that's a better way to work. Um, I think the industry is, is you have a lot of people who, um, and uh, you know, I, this is, once again, this is a learning process, but I, I feel the, the industry here, and even, even more so abroad, you have a lot of people who are gainfully employed who are just basically taking advantage of people. And, and that's, that's wrong. And because these people are artists, you know, th these people are people that put their life, their hopes, their dreams into making a film and, uh, they're, and they get taken advantage of because to them, you know, you're looking for that one person who believes in your film and you, and you might find a smooth talking distributor. I love your film. I'm going to make it happen. But, you know, you know, don't, don't give up, you know, keep, you know, protect your film and protect your media and, and do it in a, in a, in a smart way. How do you feel about online screeners? Someone gives you a, a password-protected link to something, but they could still rip it. And... Yeah, they could. Mm -hmm. So still, it's so, so yeah. have it on a laptop. Yeah. Keep ultimate control of it. Exactly. And you can show people. Exactly. That's what we did. We took the laptop with us to the AFM, and we could show them the reels and the everything right there. the The trailer should be online. You know, the trailer and a couple of reels, so people get the gist of the film. But but the whole film, you know, you you really should keep that to yourself. I feel. And then what about hiring an attorney to look over the contract? It seems like a lot of people's. Oh, I had my friend's dad look at it and it looked fine. Do you advise someone spending, whatever it is, four hundred, five hundred dollars an hour to review someone's contract? Because, I think that's probably a good idea. I think if it if if you have one distributor who's going to handle your entire project for the next. Um, let's say the contract is for two to three years, or if it's a five-year contract that's renewing. I mean, spending like you know four or five hundred bucks, or even like you know up to a thousand dollars for that peace of mind for the next five years is is well worth it. You know, just skip your daily Starbucks for a year. You know, you can do it. I mean, it, it's important. It's peace of mind, and then you can move on to your next project without having to ever worry about you know. The last thing you want to do is give your film to a distributor and then not be able to contact him. Like, hey, what's going on? What's going on with my film? And so you just don't want to put yourself in that situation. So to sum it up, it sounds like all of the work that you have to do to protect your um, media is done beforehand, and it's not done after. And once it's done after, it's it's out of your hands. It's out of your hands. Yeah. I mean, you you could get lucky and get a legitimate distributor, but my impression is there there are not very many of them around. There, there just aren't, you know, it's just a, it's a shady market out there. For any filmmaker who's never shot an action sequence, what would you tell them? Have more than one camera. That would be the, the first biggest advice. Um, the second um, advice is choreograph, choreograph, choreograph. When you're doing an action sequence, storyboard everything first. So if you don't believe in storyboarding, when it comes to action, storyboard it. So you know exactly where your key players are going to be. Then get your stunt guys and and keep going through it because it's interesting like when you practice with the stunt people, when the talent starts practicing. And um f for me like being the actor and producer, it was kind of cool because since as the actor, I'm able you're able to practice with the stunt guys and then you start to come up with stuff on your own and 
then your director or your producer is going to take that input. So when you're doing action, action requires the most pre-production of anything. A lot of people will say like, oh, well, we'll wait till we get to the actual location and we'll see how it looks or this is how I want to do it. And, um, and they've storyboarded, storyboarded it, but they haven't gone through the actual physicality of it. Because with action, you, you got to go through it, especially, especially for low-budget films. Because for low-budget independent films, our action isn't going to be like cars racing through streets. It's not going to be like guys jumping from building to building. It's going to be guys or gals punching each other. That's the bottom line. Punching each other, going through windows, landing on concrete. A lot of the times with small independent films, you don't have the proper safety gear. And both my films, we didn't. We shot it in foreign countries. And, you know, it's dangerous. And you got to practice, practice, practice. And that's the key. So if you're doing action, choreograph everything take the time and hire people that will will work with you in pre-production and then come back for the film and, and be the same the same guys it's like a dance partner you know you you dance with someone and you learn their moves and then you don't dance with them for uh, six months and you come back to a ball and you pick up right where you started you know so that's how you want your your scenes to be and and it'll go a lot quicker there's not going to be like, oh, you know, you're you're too far from the camera or you're too close to the punch. There's also a comfort level that, that takes place between the talent where the other, one guy knows he's not going to kick the other guy in the head, you know, so that, that comfort happens as well. I understand on, on from what I hear on, on big studio films, like, you know, studio films, it's, it's a little different because you've got big talent and, you know, and you've got real stuntmen who, if the talent kicks a stuntman in the head he's going to take it. he's getting paid for it but on low budget you have to choreograph and you have to practice practice any safety tips because you're working again with with safety tips um yeah so here's here's a safety tip so if you're if you're writing a screenplay and you know you're going to have a lot of action in the film make sure your your main characters don't have t-shirts so Try and like try and so talk to costume design and tell costume design like try and get them like maybe loose fitting jeans or like uh, a full sleeve shirt or a sweater so that way anytime there's an action sequence they can pad up everything they can pad everything up underneath them and if they really do fall or get whacked or something they're protected like a football player so that's key but if you got a guy um, and the, I mean, the Rock can pull it off. The, the Rock can wear a tight T-shirt and like you know, and 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 you know, he he could probably break a wall and not even feel it. But most people can't do that. So you have to um, make sure your wardrobe is appropriate to the action. So that's that's kind of like just a, a simple advice. If you want to keep your talent happy, if you don't want to keep them happy, you want them to get hurt, then yeah, put them in T-shirts and have them fight on cement, and they won't be very happy. <laughs> So you're using making the films as a launching pad for acting. Is this something that you want to do as a full-time career or you're still interested in practicing medicine and you know, staying with helping your patients? And doing what I do. I'm very much interested in medicine and I will always be interested in, in helping my patients. So that's part of me that um, I signed up for when I took the Hippocratic Oath. So that I won't leave behind. But I'm also interested in being a full-time actor. So a lot of time people get confused when you tell them, like, well, how can you be a professional 
in one field and then want to do um, acting. Like they, well, they'll, they'll say, okay, you're a doctor, but you want to be an actor. But you can be a professional in two different careers. It's very possible. It's it's just what's called time management. Uh, that's all it boils down to. So I very much um, am pursuing a full-time career in acting, but I, I'm not leaving medicine behind. I, I will still, in, in some form, uh, run my practice and um, be and be very involved in that aspect. And I and I and I and I certainly believe I can do do both. Um, you know, I've, I've looked at, you know people's schedules, actors' schedules, how they work, and, you know, the, the seasonal approach they take, and and the, the shifts, and this and that, and so I, I think it's very doable. Since a lot of acting is waiting for a role, or an audition, or a callback, so yeah. it seems definitely doable. You mentioned to me earlier that you've been interested in medicine since you were in your teens. What about acting? That too. Actually, I was... Uh, interested in acting as a teenager but I've always been a very uh, practical thinker so here I am growing up in Seattle Washington in the uh, in the Pacific Northwest and you say to yourself man it'd be it'd be cool to be an actor and I really I really like movies and I really like fantasy and it's really compelling to be someone that you are not and that's the crux of being an actor. You get to live someone else's life. And you find that very compelling. But then you come back to it and you're like, wait a minute, I'm in Seattle, Washington, you know? And I don't know anybody. And so, you know, as a practical thinker, I'm like, well, that's never gonna happen. I'm, I'm you know, I, I, there's just no way. What am I gonna do as a 15 year old? Just run off to, you know, uh, Hollywood and give it a shot. So, and I knew if, even if I did that, nothing was gonna become of it. So I just put it aside. I said, you know what, I, I, I also really am very much interested in science and I'm very much interested in medicine and that aspect of, um, you know, helping people and I think that's really cool. So I just went full bore into medicine and I really put all my heart into it. And from the time that um, I started medical school to the time that I finished my residency program, I didn't think of anything else. I mean, acting didn't even come in my brain for eight years. It was amazing. I was so focused on trying to be the best physician I could be. So I, I, I really put my heart and my soul into it, um, uh, you know, studying, doing what I could to, to um, be a good doctor. But it's interesting, though, because... I ended up in Los Angeles because of the choices I made in the residency program I decided to go with. So I went from Washington to New Orleans to medical school, and then I got accepted to the USC program for um, dermatology and dermatologic surgery because that was top of my list because they're very uh, hands-on with skin cancer, and I wanted to be a skin cancer surgeon. So I had applied to USC, and I was hoping to get in, and, and I got in. And so now here I'm in LA. and. It, and it's still, I'm not thinking of acting. I'm still in my residency, and I'm focused on that. And then in 2004, I'm done. So, and I start working. I'm, I'm done with my residency, and, and I have time. My mind opens up. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm a medical degree. I have my medical degree. I'm board certified, and I started my practice. I'm I'm doing good. 2005 comes and I'm like, wait a minute. Then I I'm allowed to think again. In in a sense, I'm allowed to think um, creatively. 
looking looking at the big picture, just looking at life in general. And those feelings of wanting to do something different, something more art something artistic in a different form, because I think practice of medicine is very artistic, uh, especially when you're doing skin cancer surgery. There's, a, there's, a, there's an art to it, I, I believe. Um, but a different form of art, um, acting. And it, it came back to me, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm sitting here in L.A. now. So being the practical guy, I go, I, I think I can do this, but I'm the one who's going to have to call the shots because I have um, gainful employment. I'm a professional. Um and and I and I believe in the code of being a professional. I can't go to the parties. I can't go to the West Side and hang out at coffee shops. I can't go out on Saturday nights and and you know be at the right places and meet the right people. So how do I create a reality where this is going to be doable? I need to make a film. So that's when the journey started, and I and I started researching like how do you make a film? Is it possible to make a film? Can you? act in your own film and so that that started my journey um, uh, to starting the screenplay for Awkward Decision which was in 2007 and then moving forward. Have you had any colleagues or even other people that you know casually that are in other professions such as law or medicine what have you that have confided in you and said I wish I could do something creative I'm using the left side of my brain all day long and I'm really screaming out to do something else, but I just can't make that leap for whatever reason. You know, it's interesting. I get that all the time. It's like, you know, they're like, Dr. Sue, how do you do this? I mean, I've always wanted to do X, Y, Z, but I don't, I can't, it's always an excuse. I can't find the time. Um, this is too challenging. That's too challenging. Or, you know, I, I, you know, Basically, you have to overcome your fear. That's that's the bottom line. And in in all professionals, in one way or, or another, I think certain percentages feel that way. You know, they want to do something. Maybe it's music or art or or, or drama or anything. Um, um, it just boils down to once again, you know, how bad you want it, and you know, are you good at time management? So, well, it seems like you thrive on challenges a little bit. Because I mean, here you've. You've gone through med school and, and the residency and all that, and that's draining and, and challenging in itself. And and maybe so you're like, okay, I've done that, and then this is a new challenge that is equally difficult, but in a different way. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is this is monumentally challenging. What what we're undertaking here with um, filmmaking and acting. Um, I felt at some point um, medical school was a challenge, and you know, becoming a medical doctor definitely was. Um, you know, I'm. I have a very, very um, stable practice. Um, a lot of, you know, knock on wood, patients that really like me, um, and I feel like I've I've done what I can do, and I will continue in that in that stream. But, um, but it's really not challenging at this juncture, whereas filmmaking definitely is. So I I, I do I do uh, thrive on that. Right. It seems with filmmaking, there's not an X, Y, Z path. Like with with medicine and law, it seems like you you do these different steps. You stay on that you know pragmatic path, and you will probably get to the end result. It's Correct. A high probability, but with acting and filmmaking and writing, whatever, it's not a clear cut path. It's not you don't connect the dots and it works. No, it's it's really risky. Mm -hmm. So it's very risky. So you know my hat is off to all those artists out there that are, you know, forging their own path. Because it, 
it, it takes a lot of courage. It really does. You know, you have to. Um, because, yeah, there, there is no clear-cut path. And, and the industry, to a certain degree, is closed. It's closed in the sense that it's um, a lot of decisions are predicated based on who you know or uh, who you're associated with um, and so forth. So to be somebody new or an outsider, um, it's, it's, it's tough. And uh, you, 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 have to, you have to go into it also knowing that you're going to take a beating. So you got to have that mindset too. Like it's okay to take a beating. Like I'm going to go into this, and I may make a film or do this or do that. But you know, some people may like it, but a lot of people are just going to—they're going to—they're going to trash you, whether it's online or whether it's to your face. And you have to accept that, and you have to have that kind of personality that's not going to be like, oh my God, this person said this, this, and that about me. You. You just have to say, okay, you know, bring it on, you know, do say what you want to say, but uh, you know, we're still shooting Winter's Dream next uh, next season. So, <laughs> do your colleagues and your patients know about your films? I mean, yes, you can Google anyone these days, and, and yeah. do you tell them? Or is that something to talk about? Well, you know, my colleagues know about it, and they think it's really cool. They're always they're always asking, and they're very excited for me. It's pretty interesting because, um, you know. As as physicians, we have our interests. I mean, my colleagues they 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 like to golf. They like to go on. They like to go on these great and interesting trips and vacations. I spend all my time focusing on filmmaking, so it's a little. I have different. I get. They view it as a hobby. I don't. It's definitely not a hobby. It's it's a passion. It's a it's a career. It's a profession. But they're very enthralled by it. Very. Um, you know, they they they're actually very supportive. It's pretty interesting. I. I thought it'd be the complete opposite but I but I had already established a reputation amongst them for being um, very um, uh, dedicated and very uh, uh, trustworthy with patients that we share so it wasn't I didn't come across as being flaky like oh here, here's a doctor who's you know auditioning for roles it didn't it didn't come out like that in regards to my patients I, I don't tell them because I have a very you know, when I'm when I'm in the clinic, I'm Doctor Sadu, and I'm focused on you. It's it's never about me. I'm just absolutely focused on you. So I don't mention it. I don't bring it up. Um, if somebody alludes to it, I just kind of go around it, because um, you know your time in my clinic is is for you, and that's it. And it's, it has nothing to do with me other than me trying to help you get to a healthy state. So I, I have a very clear-cut line. Even my whole staff, um, don't discuss it with them. Simple as that. If they ask about it, I just keep silent. We, I just kind of move around it because that's, you know, it, I want them geared towards patient care. And then on this side, you know, um, you know that's where I got, that's where I got my other team, you know, like Hiram and Chris and Monica, and then they're focused here. And so it's, um, it's cool. Do you think being pragmatic hurts acting in some sense? Because so many people have said before they crossed over and quote unquote made it that they were almost delusional in some sense because they kept at it. I mean, yes, the odds are so stacked against someone. And I think that that does hurt a lot of people. It's sort of that analysis paralysis where you overthink things and you realize the odds are not in your favor, whereas it's helped you with medicine. But do you think in some sense someone almost needs that, that blind ambition, sort of those delusions? 
Yeah, I, I, I make it in Hollywood. I, I do. I think the delusional people um, are people that uh, I admire, like all these delusional types that are out there who are going, you know, going to the right places, meeting the right people, and and, and auditioning, you know, thousands of auditions a, a year. Those are the guys that eventually make it. I mean, they do. Um, the, the, but the thing is, you have to understand who you are first. So the key is really understanding who you are and then and then being true to yourself. I'm not delusional. I'm a practical thinker. I'm very pragmatic and I'm a professional above all else. So I have to create a different way to get there. I find that delusional that the people with that type of personality will some of them definitely make it and they and they try and keep going in that direction but they have a high attrition rate as well. They tend to burn out. With, I think, pragmatic and practical thinkers, I feel that we tend to set a goal and they stick to it. So um, I think that is where the advantage lies. I think the advantage for the practical thinker lies in dedication, perseverance, and being unwavering um, to a commitment. So for when a when a practical or pragmatic person who's a professional makes a commitment, they stick to it. So my commitment is um, to make films and to be recognized as an actor at some point. So until um, that occurs, I will continue to make films and, and figure out a way to make it. So I suppose you may be thinking, well, that is uh, slightly delusional in, in and of itself. So yeah, I mean, there. I guess there's different ways to be um, eccentric, I suppose. So for me, my eccentricity is in, in a belief that I can keep propelling forward in filmmaking and um, doing it my own way, as opposed to the mainstream way. So once you finished med school and you were up and running with a thriving practice, why did this epiphany happen in terms of making a film rather than just going and finding an agent and submitting yourself online and going out for auditions okay well the the main reason was um, I didn't feel I had a chance to be quite honest so I looked at the competition and I looked at all these wonderfully talented people who just are you know I, I felt you know they're in a different league than me um, I, I kind of felt like the same way. It kind of goes back to when I applied to medical school. I saw all these people around me like super smart. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to work 10 times as hard to graduate from medical school as these guys around me. And I felt that a hundredfold when I was, when I decided to be an actor, you know, I looked around and I was like, these guys are really talented. They've gone to drama school. They've, um, been, uh, in this artistic, um, they've had this artistic psychology for you know, since they were babies, you know, some of them have done Nickelodeon, some of them have done this, done that, and here I am, uh, a guy who knows uh, a whole lot about the human anatomy, but <laughs> not about, you know, how to stand and stand on stage, right or left. So that was the main reason. I felt like if I put myself on the same playing field as these other guys, I wouldn't be recognized and I wouldn't have a chance. I felt like I was too much of an outsider. I felt like I wasn't the mainstream type of um, uh, leading character that Hollywood's looking for. So I felt like, you know, it's it's not going to happen. The other thing is um, I'm a professional and I don't have the time to go 
via the normal route. I don't have the time to um, audition for X, Y, and Z things that may or may not pan out. So that's when I had to kind of, I made the, the reality came to me, I guess, look, the only way you're going to make this happen is if you make yourself stand out somehow. And how are you going to do that? And I felt the best way to do that is to make something, make a film, because I know how to work with people. I run a practice. I know how to organize. I know how to manage my time. Um, I had a lot of concepts in my mind, thoughts and ideas that I felt were um, worthy to put it put into a screenplay or, or put into action. And so that's how the decision really came about was just, you know, kind of realizing that, um, you know, if I go the normal route, I probably won't make it. You know, I, you know, somebody like, you know, uh, you know, like these super excellent um, actors like, you know, George Clooney or, or someone, they can walk into Hollywood and fine, they can audition and they're going to get it because they're, they're I, I always feel like these guys, there's something about them that people look at them, they're like, yeah, you know, this guy's great, you know, he, he'd look great in this, this role of XYZ. And then there's the other part of the actors that made it, but they didn't make it via the traditional route. It wasn't like they walked into an audition. They're like, "Hey, you're the next best thing since you know Wonder Bread, and we're gonna make you happen." They had to. They had sort of a more circuitous route, and that's the category I felt I, I, I fit in. There's a saying that I like, and it says, uh, "Expectations are planned disappointments." And I know that's sort of a negative yeah. take, and we're trying to be a little more positive here at Film Courage. But I'm just wondering, do you think that's why a lot of people give up or self-destruct in this business because of those expectations, where it seems like you're very, you said you're a realist, and you, you know, you realize that it, it could not happen, and, and and you just kind of keep on that path. Yeah, I I very much agree with that. It's a it's a tough business. That's the bottom line because you. It's unlike anything else because you're you're constantly trying to sell yourself, which in and of itself is kind of weird. Um, so it, it's very difficult. And and the thing is, but to move forward in this, you have to have expectations. You know, and that's and that's the that's the conundrum, because how can you move forward as an actor or a filmmaker without the dream of making it big? And so. So that's where the sort of disconnect occurs because you have to have the dream, but at the same time you have to say to yourself, like, look, man, <laughs> the the probability of you making it there is is slim. Like even now after two films, I'm very much like probability of me making it slim. I, I still honestly feel that way, and and um, that's my that's that's me. And but but I have the dream. I have a dream. Like you know what? I I think I can. I just have to work harder and I have to keep trying and so so I move forward. Yeah. So from reviewing your website, I believe you mentioned that the making of the Black Russian was your desire to bring um, light to the drug problem in northern India that you experienced when you were over there? Yeah. I was um I was taking a, a taxi uh, trip up to the northern part of India. And I noticed that my cabbie kept pulling over, and he kept pulling over to the side of the street, and he'd go away and come back. And I had asked him several times, like, "Well, what are you doing, man? Why do you keep pulling over?" 
and do you have to use the bathroom or what is it? So he's like, no, I'm just getting my medicine. So then after interviewing him a little bit longer, I found out that he was actually getting opium. And I was like, I asked him, I said, literally, you can like pull over anywhere. You don't have to have like a dealer or a specific spot. He's like, it's pretty prevalent everywhere in North India. So I followed, you know, I, I traveled with him up into the, into the village areas and up to the cities of Northern India. And I found that in most villages, there's a pretty heavy presence of opium dealers or narcotics dealers. And I started asking around. I asked, like, well, what's the, what's the percentage, do you think, of addiction here? And I pulled an article, actually, that at some point there was a certain category of, um, of men. Uh, like, I think it was like 17 to 24, where at some point 40% of the population was using opium. So I didn't buy that because I said 40% of this region is using opium. I said, that, that's crazy. That means like the you know, civilization is going to collapse. Um, and I found it striking that no one knew about this. And this is happening in the north of India, bordering Pakistan. So I talked to a couple of government officials there. And, they, and what they explained to me was that a lot of the, the drugs come over from uh, Pakistan. And a lot of the terrorist activities are funded by this drug trade. The drug trades, uh, the drugs come in, the money goes out, weapons are bought and so forth. And this sort of sets up all the, the, the weapons trades that happen between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And no one knows about the impact it has on Northern India. And I said, I thought to myself, I, I, I thought it'd be really cool to bring light to this drug trade, but in the, um, as in the in the in the construct of a story or a screenplay I wanted to tell, so it was a sort of a happenstance journey I was taking up there, and I found out about it and I uh, used this as the backdrop to to Black Russian. You mentioned that the Indian news media seems to maybe bypass yeah these stories. Yeah, they they tend not to focus on it. I think the media in India is very much driven by what um, the, the politicians. Uh, you know, you know, want the people to to look at or view. So I think um, the the politicians have something to do with this drug trade, and um, this is just a you know the theory or supposition. It's not I don't know to be fact, but after talking to several people, you know, it, it seems like certain politicians are getting richer, and others are not. And India being a it's, it is a democracy, but it's not the it's not the pressing issue. I mean, there's other, you know, other issues that the, the media likes to cover there. So it's not something that's really known about. And I find that, I just found that odd. From your time in, you said you spent some time briefly in Seattle, uh -huh. you know, doing something with psychology and, and yeah, addiction. Yeah, my undergrad at okay. University of Washington. <laughs> so what parallels do you see? Because is heroin usage is fairly high, isn't it, in the Washington area or yeah. alcohol? It might be, but it, but I never came across it. I mean, like, not like in India. <laughs> wow. So the, in India, it was my it was my taxi driver. In, uh, in, in Seattle, I was just hanging around with other college kids who perhaps alcohol use was a little high, but... Uh, but I don't know about the other stuff. Do you see any parallels between how, especially California culture, I mean, there's dispensaries pretty much on, on most blocks, aside from residential neighborhoods. Do you see any sort of parallels between that or, or two different animals? Um, I, I think they're, they're two different animals. I, I, I think the dispensaries are more 
I guess they're more government regulated here in the state. Um, whereas in India, it's um, it's like you know, like a crack dealer. You know, it's like on the corner of the street. You know, it's it's very shady and 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 uh, you know, there's uh, you know, no uh, I guess quality control <laughs> is what you would say. When we were writing the screenplay for The Black Russian, we wanted to draw on real-life issues that are happening in that part of the world. And one of the, the biggest issues over there is not only the drugs, but how politicians and the police themselves are involved in the whole process. So in our film, when the protagonist, um, the Colin, the lawyer, goes to India to look for his fiancée, he comes across those very same issues where the police force, the politicians are in collusion with these narco-terrorists. And it becomes a very interesting, compelling story because you you have this guy who already is in a foreign land and he's going to all the proper sources to get help, but the, the actual help is, is is not the help. They're actually the enemy. So we, we, we use those real-life elements um, that we've seen happen in that part of the world and um, transpose them onto our screenplay and, and use it to tell the story. Did art imitate life in any sense when you were over there? Did you encounter anyone trying to stop you or any resistance? Well, we were shooting in the north um, northern region of India, which borders Pakistan. So it's an area that is under heavy surveillance from the Indian Army. So we had a lot of um, Indian Army personnel around, and it was... Um, you know, our line producers told the crew, like, you know, after, you know, a certain amount, you know, after dark, make sure you're back at the hotel and so forth. So, although the setting was safe, we didn't have any incidents, um, you definitely felt the presence of the army and you and you kind of got a feeling of that the area wasn't as, um, uh, you know, pristine as um, one would one would think if you just looked at the scenery. How did you conduct yourself and how did you advise the other staff members or excuse me crew members to conduct themselves i mean just was it not to make eye contact or just be incredibly respectful or not even engage with them no i i actually told the crew i said look you you're here in india you go out and have a good time you know go out there meet people explore do what you got to do but you know stay in a group and just be back before a certain time and whenever you're going anywhere make sure you take one of our local guys with you. So I encourage them to actually meet people and talk to people and not to um, be standoffish because there were a lot of tourists in the area as well. Um, and just, you know, be smart about it. You know, go in groups and, and also um, use the resources that we have, like the drivers and so forth, and uh, explore. So you made all of your money back on your first independent film, um, A Car Decision, which is something we rarely hear of people doing. Um, first off, where did you meet those investors? Where did you obtain them? And then what was the process like? Okay. Well, the investors actually already knew me. So um, being, you know, you want to, first of all, approach people that you know. In in my situation, um, having, you know, being an established professional, I was in contact with other professionals. And... It's interesting, in the United States, um, there's a lot of non-traditional uh, investors that are very much interested in Hollywood. You know, and you'd, you'd really be surprised. And it's not here in California. You can go anywhere. You can go to like Las Vegas, for instance, um, or New York, or anywhere in the country. 
And people are very much enthralled with Hollywood and they like to be involved, whether it's, you know, behind the scenes or not. So you want to go to people you know and, you know, you have to have a, a background when you're approaching individuals who are going to invest in a project. So it's like it's like anything. It's like being a, uh, I guess it's like being a, a broker and, and you're approaching someone and saying, hey, I got this great portfolio of stocks and I want you to invest in it because I, I can make you a return. So a lot of a lot of this goes plays on the credibility of the individual who's selling the project and I was selling the project fundamentally and with these people I was very credible I was I was extremely professional um, they knew exactly what I was about and they they knew my MO they knew that I'm not someone who's going to be frivolous with funds but I have a very specific vision for a project and a plan on how to get them their um, a return on their investment so that's that's the approach I took, which is probably gonna be a little bit different, I think, than um, some of the uh, people who are locally trying to make films. My, I guess, what I would say is really use your own network first. Try and try and exhaust that before going to the traditional sources, like you know, going downtown and and finding a production house or pitching your script at the AFM. What types of materials did you present these investors with? Like, let's say, you know, you were a broker and you were going to show them your quarterly reports or something. What did you show them to to make them, besides them knowing you personally and, and you know, having an existing relationship? Well, you have to show them. Well, first of all, the, the big thing is how much money do you already have in the film? So for me, you know, I had invested 20% of the film already so I already had a certain amount of um, as, as I said before skin in the game that's huge that's really important because a lot of times you hear about um, uh, people getting money from investors and just being very frivolous with it and, I, and, I'm, and I'm talking on all levels I'm talking about directors producers actors you know and so forth there it's really easy to be frivolous with other people's money and and that's just not professional and it's not the way to conduct yourself so they already knew how much of investment I was making in it which is 20% and I'm looking for the rest of the 80% so a lot of this has to a lot of this a lot of this is dependent on how much faith they have in you as a person who's going to be able to deliver on a promise so a lot of it does go back to personality and and having a, a record of being an upright individual so that's a big part of it um, then the second part of it is what's the strategy so what's the audience that you're trying to target so in my case Aukri decision was made for a foreign um, audience and what I did was I did research on theatrical sales in India where I wanted to release this film and I gave them the numbers I said look if we invest this much it's a safe bet that we can get a return on our investment if um, as long as we don't go over this amount of money and if we can get a theatrical release in India which we did it was a national release we should be able to make the money back as long as we're really smart on the on the flip side of it making sure that the um, the distributors are actually giving us you know our fair share and you said one theater was playing the film for over a year yeah it was became... yeah I, I I heard about it like I was I was kind of shocked I was somebody um, um, so one of the guys who was actually on the crew in India, he he called me up or I don't know he called me or emailed me. He was like, he was like, hey, he's like, Umber, the 
I just saw your poster here and it, it's still up and it's they're playing to film and I was like I was like now oh, you're full of it I said come on man who's gonna play that film for more than a year and, and he sent me like a little picture and it was up in the theater and I was like damn I said they're playing my film it's been over a year <laughs> so so I was like I'm I, so I was I decided to take a trip to go see like what's the story here like why why do people like it and um and uh and yeah so it, it was a it was a pleasant surprise the other, the other pleasant, pleasant surprise was that that first film actually made it to a lot of sources that I didn't know about. So this is the funny, this is the funniest story. So, so I, I sold the theatrical rights. Okay, so I got money for the theatrical rights, and that's where we made our money for. But we didn't sell the television rights. Okay, so we're shooting the Black Russian up in the mountains, and there's only two channels. Okay. And on one of the public channels, they're playing Awkward Decision. And this is crazy. So my crew, my the makeup guy, he was he got sick. So he was the only guy who was laid up in the hotel. And he was watching this and he sees my film and he in 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 India it was interesting because they just assume you're like a you're since this is a film that you're starring and they just assume like, oh yeah, he's a well known actor. So he just saw it and he goes, Oh, there's another one of uh, Ummer's films. Cool, it's on TV. So he he recorded on his cell phone, and so he said, "Hey, your film's playing." I said, "My film's playing." What are you talking about? This is my first film. I, uh, how can my film be playing? He goes, "No, your film is playing." So I go, "Well, show me." So he recorded, it, and my film, the first film, was actually playing. And so then we contacted the 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 station. We said, "Hey, how did who who gave you the film?" And they were like, "Well, we you know they they just didn't answer the question." So, um, so that was cool. <laughs> so what were the key factors in making your money back? The key factors were um, having a solid game plan for post-production. Um, going into the filmmaking process, I knew that a certain amount of the budget had to be spent on advertising and PR. So in foreign sales, what you'll find is that you'll be able to secure theatrical release if you're willing to put in money for marketing. And so that was a big distinguishing factor between us and other films, where other films, you make the film and, and you're, okay, well, here's my film. Can somebody please buy it? Whereas, you know, you want to you want to finish a film, but then still have a game plan to get the film out there. So with Aukri Decision, we actually put up the marketing money, half of the marketing money for India. And the the, the distributors put up the other half. So we, we kind of, we had a, a marriage of funds. And therefore, we secured um, theatrical distribution. And Awkward Decision was released big in India. We had billboards. I mean, it was like a film you would you would see here in in Hollywood, like uh, Ocean's Eleven, where you see billboards everywhere. It was exactly like that in uh, Bombay, which is the big film hub, Delhi, as well as in North India, and as well as in Rajasthan. I I went out there. I I went to different cities, visited, promoted the film myself with the director of the film. And so we had a very solid um, post strategy on how to get the film out, and we targeted the audience that we felt would respond the best to an action drama um, that takes place on two continents. So people who are more f who want to catch a glimpse of L.A. as well as um, see a story unfold in the Indian background. So we, we we chose our target audience very well, and then had a game plan to capture that audience. So that was really the key, is, is not just knowing that you finished the film, it's what were you 
going to do after it was finished? That's that's critical. So for everybody out there, you know, you know, I know it's all about making the film, and that's wonderful. Um, but the whole idea of making the film is for people to watch it, and the way people are going to watch it is if you know you have PR and you have a marketing team that is going to help you. So whatever funding you're coming up with to to make your film, make sure a certain amount of that is allocated for the back end. So you say that you were very, quote, lucky yeah. with the car decision, knowing that some of that was luck, maybe some of it was also your you know, planning. How can you improve upon that for The Black Russian and also your third film? Well, yeah, definitely uh, for a car decision, I, I feel we got, we got lucky. You know, we happened to hit at the right time in the right season and we were able to um, recover the funds. For the future films, the way we can improve on it, or the way I am improving on it is, I'm actually making films that have more content on half the budget. So right off the bat, I'm already in a better position because now I'm much more efficient in filmmaking than I was with the first film. Secondarily, um, we're targeting a different audience now. So we're targeting, um, California. We're targeting the United States and Europe, so we're targeting Hollywood, and that's where um, that's what the, the Black Russian story is for. So our our target demographic has changed as well. So we made the first film knowing which audience would respond to it best, and playing on that, we found you know I did some research and figured like, well, what, what do people, what what are independent you know moviegoers going to want to watch? Because we can't compete with the Avengers. You know, we're not, forget it. So what is somebody likely to, you know, get on Redbox? Or what is someone likely to to, um, to, to find interesting and compelling and to view? So those are, those are some of the factors that, that I had to think about before actually even um, getting to the screenplay of The Black Russian. So a lot of it is about choosing your target demographic. And you, I think you tend to hone those skills as time goes on. Um, I think the third film is going to be, uh, you know, the dream is we're going to knock it out of the out of the park. But the third dream has science fiction elements, and I've always wanted to make a science fiction film. I've, I'm enthralled with Blade Runner, you know, and films like that. I always felt it wasn't possible, but after finishing the Black Russian and working in post production on Black Russian. I figured out how we can do science fiction, you know, with lasers and all the effects on a budget that's doable for um, independent film. So I think I'm opening it up to a whole different demographic now. We're, we're opening it up to the, to the Comic-Con crowd, and that's a huge crowd. And so that's where um, uh, Winter's Dream is headed. You know, I see Winter's Dream headed for that audience, and I'm very, very excited about it. So it's a learning process and, and you learn more about your demographic. The other thing is, um, the other thing, and I think this is, the, this is, for me, this is the most important thing. I make awkward decision. They're like, uh, Amr Sidhu, who are you? We don't know you. Now in India, some people do know me. Like, I went to the airport and a guy actually wanted a picture with me. I was like, oh, that's cool. All right. So, um, come over here um, and I try and sell the Black Russian. I go, yeah, but but I made awkward decision. We don't care. Who are you? You're nobody. You know, you're some guy that made a foreign film. Big deal. And now you want it. Now you're starring in this new film. Okay. 
fast forward a year, winter's dream, who are you? I'm the guy with the black Russian. I'm the guy in Acre Decision. So that is the other strategy. The other strategy is recognition now, because now there's going to be a certain amount of people that are going to, are going to remember me from the black Russian and the same people that maybe remembered me from Acre Decision. So I'm also building um, my recognition as an actor. So every film that I do in the future, I, I think I will get to the point I don't know when, but I strongly feel I will get to the point where I will go to AFM one day and they'll say, well, who do you got in the film? Me. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> so let's talk. <laughs> so that that's where we're at. Do you feel, too, that your time management skills have improved oh, yeah. in terms of filmmaking? You said so much of it is just kind of learning as you go. Definitely, yeah. Time management is, is critical. You, you, you have to, um, you know, when you're filming on low budget, every hour matters of the day so you know first of all managing just the production itself is hard because you want to produce that film within six weeks which is tough because of actor schedules um, you know weather changes and so forth and then post-production is really critical as well because post-production can go on forever because of you know editing changes but at the same time you don't want to lose sight of of the future so for me i think time management has has gone a lot better i think i think the main thing is working with people who are um who are diligent and who are you know uh commensurate and their level of professionalism so you really want to surround yourself with a team of people that are going to go through this with you uh through thick or thin you know that's 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 really what it boils down to because in this industry there's a lot of people that come and go you know, they come onto your project, you know, you know, making uh, a lot of grandiose statements like, this is my baby, you know, I, I, you know, this is my dream. And then like two months into it, you know, you know, where'd they go? You know, they don't, they don't want to continue with the, with the cause. Um, but then again, every now and then you find that, you know, that one person or two who's like, you know, very interested in the project and is going to, you know, take it to completion. Um, and you stick with those type of people. And I think they, they help you with your time management. Um, and I, I'd like to, you know, I, I want to mention my DP crew, for instance. Like we, I worked with um, my director of photography for pickup shots in Acre Decision, and I was so impressed with this guy, his work ethic. Um, his name is Dilshad Va. He does like a lot of movies in India, and I was like, man, this guy is like amazing. His work ethic is just crazy. So I called him for the Black Russian. I said, I said, Dilshad, I'm going to be shooting this film in uh, northern India in the mountains, and it's going to be crazy. The conditions are going to be horrible. Um, and uh, do you want to do it? Yes or no? And he was like, I'm all over it because he already worked with me and he knew how I worked. So he was very enthusiastic. So he shot the Black Russian with me. And this guy was amazing. I mean, as a DP, he was nonstop and, and, and he really helped my efficiency. And so now as we're scripting um, Winter's Dream, I'm in constant communication with him because he's, he keeps calling me every two months. He's like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? What kind of cameras are we going to use? And so forth. So you, you try and find the right people and, and, you, and, and, you, and you stick with them. Do you believe filmmakers should focus their efforts on film festivals or film markets or are both two separate animals? Well, um, that, that, that fundamentally depends on the film. And it, and it really does because every film festival has a different feel to it. So when you like submit to Sundance, for instance, they are looking for independent films, but but they're looking for a and 
I don't know if I can express it properly, but they're looking for a certain feel of films, like a certain type of or style of film, as is Toronto, as is Berlin. So if you feel that your film fits with the, um, the culture of that film festival, then the film festival is definitely the way to go. But before going into the film festival, like anything else, you got to do your, your, your work. Uh, I, I would strongly suggest having people lined up who know people at the festival. So that way you, when you go there, you don't get lost. So if your film does make it to a festival, you should at least know programmers. You should have your PR person with you. So that way it's not just lost. You can actually get some traction from it. Maybe you might even find a distributor at a, at a, at a film festival. So use that as like, um, as your, um, you know, as your Normandy, you know, prepare for it. You know, that's, that's your landing. And it's really important. You got to do prep and prep. So if you get into a film festival, then, you know, focus all your efforts around. I'm talking about the A-list festivals. So if you're going to get into an A-list festival and your film fits that, well, great. Then I, I think that's, that's beautiful. Um, but if your film is like more mainstream, um, if it's more uh, mainstream where in the sense you are doing like action films, for instance, that maybe have been you know, told on a, on a, on a grand budget, like by a studio or something, but you're doing an action film in a unique manner, then maybe the markets are better because, you know, you're not, you're not doing so much the art film, which I think would fit better with the festivals, but you're doing more of a mainstream film that you think might reach a broader audience. Perhaps the market would be better. You may be able to find somebody who will ally themselves with you, like whether it's a distributor or, um, or someone who knows, you know, how to how to sell a film or a broker, that that perhaps may be a better way, but 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 it's hard to tell. I mean, I'm not like I said, I I uh, it's a massive learning curve, and I'm still uh, a bit confused. So, <laughs> but that's that's my take on it.